guide to lead us on our journey. I use the word journey intentionally. If you stop and think about how we talk about travel, we often talk about it in terms of a trip, but every once in a while we'll use the word journey to describe kind of what's going on in in what we experience. When I think of a trip, I think of getting from point A to point B and and, and my whole idea is I want to get there and I want to get back. When I think about the word journey, I'm actually thinking about the trip itself. I'm thinking about what's going to happen along the way. What am I going to experience or what do I hope to experience? What do I anticipate uh, learning? What will happen along the way? What will I bring back from the journey? How will the journey affect me? How will it change me? How will it grow me? And sometimes we use that word not just to talk about getting in a car and going somewhere. Sometimes we use the word journey to talk about things that, that don't involve travel, like we were just talking about. So for example, we would describe maybe our four years at a university as a journey. Or maybe we would look at a particular experience that we uh, have had in life. Maybe uh, there was a particular trial we experienced, or there was a particular uh, blessing that came our way, and we would look at that, and we would describe all of that as a journey. And that's the word that I want to use as we talk talk about the book of James over the next several months. I want us to go on a journey. And I want us to focus not so much on the destination, but I want us to focus on what we will encounter along the way. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to do three things. I want to give you the background information that'll help us. This is the stuff we need to put in our backpack as we stand sort of at the head of the trail and we meet James, our tour guide, and, uh, and, and there are things we need to know about him And there are things we need to know about the journey uh, before we start. So what are the things that we need to put in our backpack to make sure that we have everything we need mentally to gain everything we want to gain from our journey together? So I want to give us a little background. Then I want to ask and answer three questions. And then I want to make an appeal at the end. All right? So we're going to look at some background to sort of get us ready for the journey. We're going to ask and answer three important questions that I think will chart out the journey itself, sort of give us a roadmap so that we know kind of ahead of time where we're headed and what we're going to encounter on the way. And then I want to make an appeal at the end. So let's start with the important background information. And here's, here's the way I want you to think about it. I want you to picture yourself standing at the head of a trail And uh, while you're waiting for the guide, while you're waiting for James to show up, you're sort of looking around at all of the placards and all of the things that are sort of positioned there that are designed to tell you things about that trail, things about the journey. If you've ever been, for example, to the Grand Canyon, There is a place that you can go before you actually get to the canyon, and as you're in that place and you look around, there are videos that are going, there are are little places where you can read things, there are monitors that you can sort of uh, touch and they'll bring up information, and all of that is there to give you information about what you're going to see and what you're going to experience while you're there. And that's really what I want to do this morning in this first part of our message. I want us to to sort of look around, and I want us to make sure that we have the right background information so that we know what we are going to be looking at along the way. So let me give you a couple of things that I want to make sure you have in your backpack. Here, Here they are. Number one, James is probably the earliest book written in our New Testament. It's the earliest New Testament book written, probably written in the mid-40s, somewhere between 44 and 47 AD. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, let me give you just a reminder that Jesus Christ was 33 years old when he was crucified. 
We think that he was probably crucified. I'm sorry, he was 30 years old. We think he was probably crucified right around 33 AD. So if we, if we take the word, you know, the number 30 to 33 or 35 AD, and we fast forward to 45 AD, we are talking about 10 years after the introduction of the major events and the major truths that make up our Christian faith. In other words, James is not just telling Christians what they need to know at the beginning of their individual journey. This book is actually helping the church at large know what they need to know at the start of its journey in this amazing faith that Jesus Christ has introduced. So James is a book about beginnings, individual beginnings, corporate beginnings, and big beginnings. James is a book about the beginning of everything that we believe. And so it's one of the earliest books in the New Testament. And then secondly, when James sat down to write, he didn't write by like, like someone would write if they were living in theological isolation, far removed from the daily pressures that would come into the life of a person who had embraced the faith of Jesus Christ and had now to live that faith out in, the, in a world that either didn't know about that faith or was hostile to that faith. James is writing as a pastor. He himself, I mean, he knew himself what it was like to be a skeptic. He knew what it was like to hear these astonishing claims come out of the mouth of Jesus, and and he knew what it was like to evaluate those claims and to reject them. He knew how hard it was to believe the amazing things that the gospel had to say about Jesus Christ, and he knew all too well how difficult those things were to embrace because he himself had been a skeptic as the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, he is writing this letter to help others understand how to navigate their own faith under those kinds of pressures. And that's why the third thing we want to throw in our backpack is that this letter is deeply theological. It's the earliest letter. It was written by a pastor who understood how hard it was to embrace the truth about Jesus Christ and then to live that truth out in a culture where it was unknown, where it would be shocking and where it would actually be offensive and resisted And that's why he grounds what he has to say in the theology of the Old Testament. He wants you to know that this really isn't a new and novel faith. What he is going to write about is a faith that God has been talking about for the entire history of the human race. And everything you need to know about that faith up till the time that James wrote was written in the Old Testament. And that's why there's so many Old Testament references in the book of James. And and James is deeply concerned that the theology of the Christian faith not just be given mental assent. In other words, that we don't just agree that we believe these things about Jesus of Nazareth, but that our belief actually be so deeply embedded in us that it begins to shape the way we think and the way we respond and the way we live out our lives wherever it is that we are living. And that's why he instructs believers in chapter 1, verse 21, to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So this is the earliest letter. It's written by a pastor who understood the difficulty of embracing and living out the truths, the astonishing truth of the faith of Jesus Christ. It's deeply theological. And number four, it is appropriately practical. James is going to sit down with us and he's going to tell us what true religion and genuine faith actually look like. It's like he's going to sit across the table as your pastor and he's going to sit down with you and he's going to say, so I hear that you have made a confession. 
I hear that you've come to the place where you confess with your mouth the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is going to say the very same thing to the Romans. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, we will be what? Saved. So James is coming a little earlier, and he's sitting down with these people, and he's saying, look, I hear that you have confessed something. I hear that you have confessed the truth about Jesus Christ. I I hear that you have embraced the faith of Christ. So I want to know if that confession is true and if that faith is genuine. I want to know if what's coming out of your mouth, I want to know if what you're telling people you have done. I want to know if the claims that you're making about being a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to know if those claims are true, and I want to know if that faith that you claim is actually real. I want to know if it's genuine. And that's why along the way, James is going to get deeply pastoral with us. He's going to sit down, and he's going to ask in a very kind and gracious way some very pointed questions about our faith. Is it real? Is it genuine? So this letter is appropriately practical, but it's also graciously confrontational. So here's what's going on in James. When you get done listening to James and you let James ask you all the questions that he's going to ask you, James is actually going to talk about two ways. He's going to talk about two ways. And he's going to talk about two wisdoms. He's going to talk about a wisdom that comes down from above, a wisdom that is from God, and then he's going to talk about a wisdom that rises up from below or from beneath, a wisdom that is from the world. So there are two wisdoms. And when James talks about the idea of wisdom, he's not just talking about the way a person thinks or what a person knows. He's going back to the Old Testament and he's referring to a body of wisdom that governs the life of a people group. So for example, if you lived in ancient Egypt, there was a body of wisdom that navigated and shaped the way you thought as an Egyptian. How did you think about life? How did you think about death? How did you think about the way the world worked? Why was the Nile River so important? Why do we have these nine gods that we worship? Why do we spend all of our earthly resources building our house that we're going to stay in after we die, and we live in poverty in the meantime. Why do we live the way that we live? And the answer to all of those questions was in a body of wisdom that was common to the Egyptians. Every nation had a wisdom. And the people of God had a wisdom. And their wisdom was located in a book called the Torah. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses looked at the nation as he was handing them the finished copy for the second time of this wisdom, and he says to them as he hands them the book, the Torah, the scroll, he says to them, this book is your wisdom in the sight of the nations. So when James talks about wisdom, he's not just talking about common sense, and good advice. He's talking about a particular wisdom. And he pretty much puts all the wisdoms that exist on the planet in one of two categories. There is a wisdom that came down from God in the Torah, and there are all the other wisdoms in the world. And James is saying, in a very gracious but confrontational way, you have to choose between these two wisdoms. And these two wisdoms are going to lead to two ways. And so let me describe the ways, James says. There there are two ways. There there is a way of living that is shaped by the wisdom that comes down from above. And the people who walk on that way, we could call these people the friends of God. And there is all of this other wisdom. And by the way, Psalm 1 talks about this. 
right? There, there is the counsel of the ungodly, there is the way of sinners, and there is the seed of the scornful. There is the way the world thinks, the way the world lives, and what the world values. And, and, and those wisdoms scoff and scorn and mock at the idea that there's a wisdom that is better that comes from above. And everybody that chooses that wisdom and walks in that way are the friends of God. And everybody that lives by these wisdoms and walks on this way are actually the friends of the world. And James is going to say a very direct and very confrontational thing. Friendship with the world and this wisdom is completely incompatible with friendship with God. In fact, if you have a friendship with the world, then you are what? At enmity with God. So when James gets very gracious and very confrontational, that's what he's doing. He's talking about people who are living out their faith and they are constantly on a daily basis having to choose which wisdom they're going to live by and which way they're going to walk on. Are they going to be a friend of God or are they going to be a friend of the world? And to help them understand what it looks like to be a friend of God, he gives them five models in the book. You're going to meet five friends of God. You're going to meet Abraham, and you're going to meet Rahab in chapter 2. They are friends of God. You're going to meet the prophets. They are friends of God in chapter 5. You're going to meet Job, who's a friend of God in chapter 5. And then you're going to meet Elijah, who's a friend of God. And the whole point to the book is James is saying to you, look, I want you to know about these two ways, and I want you to know about these two wisdoms, because some of you are starting to choose to walk down the wrong way. And he has a word for this. And the word for that that he has for this is a word that you meet in chapter 1, and it is the word double-minded. You are double-minded. Some of you are double-minded. You are double-souled. You have an affinity and you have a, a desire for this wisdom and this way and you make a profession and a claim and a confession to belong to Jesus and to love Jesus. And that's what's coming out of your mouth. But then on the other hand, you also have an affinity and an attraction for the wisdom that comes from below. And you are cultivating a friendship with the world and the evidence of that is all over your life. It comes out of your mouth. One time you're talking about this wisdom and the words that are flowing out of your mouth are sweet, like, like water, fresh water that comes out of a fountain and it's refreshing and we listen and we hear the wisdom that comes from above and we hear the words that you say about Jesus and the words you say about the Christian life and the next time we meet you, what comes out of your mouth is bitter. It, it's, it's salty, it's, 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 it's awful. And then we see the effects of it in your life, that the, the words that come out of your mouth here are devouring one another. And, and James is saying to you, this is totally incompatible with who you really are as a Christian. And that's why at the very end of the book, James is going to come along and he's going to talk about a person who is wandering away from the truth. If you go to the very end of the book, you can see sort of the opening key, or rather the key that opens the whole book. Here's, here's what James says in verse 19, my brothers, if any among you, and he's talking now about Christians, he's talking to Christians, and he's talking about Christians. He says, brothers, that's who he's talking to, and then he's going to talk about someone who wanders, and the someone who wanders is among the Christians. This person is a Christian. So he's talking to Christians about a Christian. And here's what he says. 
My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone, what? Brings him back. If you wander from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, that's what's in our backpack now. We just loaded our backpack up with some amazing information. Earliest book in the New Testament, written by a pastor who understands the difficulty of believing initially these astonishing things about Jesus and then facing the reality of living out those amazing realities and truths in a context where nobody else buys it and nobody else understands it and nobody else can believe it. This is a book that is theologically rooted in the promises and in the models of the Old Testament and it is extraordinarily practical as it talks about the fact that what we confess Our faith needs to be genuine, it needs to be living, it needs to be growing. And it's graciously confrontational. So all of that's in our backpack now, right? So that's the background, that's the first thing we want to do. Second thing we want to do is we want to answer three questions. So let me begin with question number one. And it's a very simple question. Who is James and what was he like? In other words, if we're going on this journey and James is our guide, we want to find out who James is and what is it about James that makes him such a great guide. And there's a ton of things that we could say about James, but let me give you four this morning, all right? So who is James and what is he like? So here are four things that you need to know about James so that you will appreciate what he writes to us and you will have confidence in the way that he guides us on the journey. So the first thing we want to know about James, or we ought to know about James, is his personal piety. His personal piety. James had a nickname in the first century. Uh, You know, nicknames are funny, right? Nicknames, we give somebody a nickname for a lot of reasons. Sometimes we give a person a nickname because we can't remember their real name. You ever happen to you, somebody like, well, well, who are we talking? Oh, I can't remember. I just can't think of the guy. He looks like, you know, he, he, he looks like uh, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> or he looks like Christopher Robbins. So now we call him Winnie the Pooh. Hey, call up Winnie the Pooh and tell him to come to lunch. And that person immediately knows who Winnie the Pooh is. I'm being really crazy here, right? Sometimes we give a person a nickname because of something that is true about them. Like if a person is tall, we might call him Stretch, Right? Uh, sometimes, sometimes we give a person a nickname that is the opposite of what they are. Like we might call a large person tiny. Call up tiny and tell them to come over, right? So we give nicknames to a lot of people, but a lot of times we give a person in the Bible a nickname to describe something that is true about them. And James had a nickname. You know what his nickname was? James the just. James the just. He was known throughout the first century as a just man. He was the oldest of Jesus' earthly brothers. You can read that story in Matthew 13 and in Mark 6. And as we said earlier, initially he was deeply skeptical of the claims that were coming out of the mouth of his older brother, Jesus, particularly the claim that he was the Messiah. And James took deep offense at this. You can read about that offense in Mark 3.21 and in John chapter 7. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus made a personal appearance to his younger brother, an individual personal appearance. And from that moment on, James became a believer a committed, genuine, full-on follower of Jesus Christ. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. And eventually, because of his piety and because of his commitment, he became the first pastor of the first church ever in the history of Christianity, the church in Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Galatians 2 and in Acts 15. 
And the thing that everybody knew about James when you talked about him to others was that he was deeply righteous. He was personally holy and personally pious. In fact, Josephus, the early church historian, reported a story about James that that when he went into the temple to pray, because that is where the early church first mentioned, he would get on his knees and he would pray for such a long time and he would pray so often that his knees developed deep calluses. Sometime between AD 64 and AD 68, he was martyred by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem on account of his piety and his holiness and his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about James, he was known for his personal piety. Secondly, we know his ministerial credibility. He had wise and gracious leadership. His ministry was marked by wisdom from above. The the kind of wisdom that James is going to talk about in chapter 3, that marked James's own ministry as evidenced by how he handled difficult questions and relational conflict that immediately surfaced in the early church. What are we going to do when when a certain group of widows and and, and the people associated with them feel neglected? How are we going to handle that? James had to deal with that. He had to navigate powerful personalities. I mean, how would you like to shepherd Peter and Paul? James says, you know, Paul, I think God's calling you to to take a lot of missionary trips. And Peter, you stay right here. I I don't know if that's true or not. But think about the powerful personalities that James had to navigate. And then he had to answer very difficult and, and, and very complex and very touchy questions. So James, we keep hearing about all these Gentiles that are becoming followers of our Messiah. That's awesome. Now let me ask you some questions about all these Gentiles who used to be idolaters and who used to worship their pagan gods and do all the pagan things they used to do. Question number one, are they going to get circumcised or not? Question number two, what are they going to do about all the food that they eat and they buy at all of their cities that was offered to idols? Because you know and I know what the Old Testament has to say about both of those things. Oh, and by the way, when can we expect them to make the pilgrimages to Jerusalem? Because we know what the Bible says about that. And so here is James the first pastor of the first church, and the church is exploding with growth, and all of a sudden, he has all of these thorny questions. And James answers those questions with wise and gracious leadership. And if he hadn't, the early church would have exploded in division. And then he's marked, number three, by genuine humility. He's just James. He's James the just, but he's just James. I mean, look how he introduces himself in the first verse. James, a servant of God. Not the servant. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he took, he, you know, think of what James could have said. Hey, as I open my letter to you, let me just remind you of my relationship to our Lord, James. The next oldest brother of the head of all of this. He could have said that. He could have pointed to the fact that he was the well-known and respected pastor of the very first and the largest and the fastest growing church in the New Testament. Hey, I'm the church. I'm the pastor of this church that's exploding. Let me talk to you about our growth. In the first year, we grew from 120 to 5,000. And I'm the pastor of all of that. He could have done that. He could have referenced uh, himself and he could have pointed himself as sort of like the larger than life elder statesman of the first century Christian community. Because actually that's what he was. In Acts 15, Paul and Peter, they come to the church and they hold a church council and guess who everybody automatically looks to as the leader of all of that and, and as the head of that first council, a man named James. But what he does is he picks a word 
that nobody else would pick. He says, I want you to think of me as a servant. I'm just a servant. The word is actually a very offensive word in our day and age. It's the word slave. James says, I want you to think of me as a slave, a servant. The lowest rung on the social ladder of any context in which his readers are going to be is the one James picked. I'm a servant. So there's genuine humility in this man. And then I want you to notice his pastoral authority. This piety, this credibility, this humility all leads to putting James in a place where he has genuine pastoral authority. There is this sense in which James is going to speak graciously, but he's going to speak directly. And it's not just to the original readers. The Holy Spirit of God chose to take this book that James sat down and wrote and, and in which he speaks so graciously and so directly and preserve it so that James speaks that way to us. In the 108 verses that make up this little book, there are more than 50 imperatives. There are more than 50 commands. I mean, you're going to get the sense as we go through James that James is very, very direct and he's very, very urgent. He is gracious, but he's direct and he's urgent. He's going to say things in a very affectionate way. Like, for example, he's going to say, my brothers, when he writes. He's going to call them my brothers in chapter 1, verse 1, in chapter 2, verse 1, and in verse 14, in chapter 3, verse 1, and in verse 10. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, and in verse 12 and verse 19, he's going to look at these people, and he's going to be very, very direct, but he's going to be very gracious. He's going to say, my brothers. It's like, like James is about to really say something direct, and he'll say, now look, brothers, let, let's, let's, let's stop, and let's talk. And then he's very affectionate at times. He will say this, my beloved brothers. My dear brothers. So there is this gracious authority that comes as he gives direct instruction and loving intervention. I mean, how do you get away by by looking at people and saying to them, now, my dear brothers, can I just say something to you? You are adulterers and adulteresses. How do you get away with that? I mean, can you imagine somebody coming here as a guest speaker and looking at you and saying, I want you to know something that I know about you. You are a bunch of adulterers and adulteresses. That would get your attention. That would wake you up. That would sit you back in your chair. That would kind of set you on edge. And that is exactly what James is doing here. But he does it in a way that by the time he says that to you, you are ready not just to hear it, but to receive it. That's the beauty of the humility and the wisdom and the credibility and the piety of the one doing the talking. So when you think about James, that's who he is. I mean, our guide is somebody who's known for his personal piety. He's got ministerial credibility that's marked by wisdom. He has genuine humility. He's not coming in here and and pointing to all of the things that he has or has done. He's just coming as a fellow servant, a fellow slave of Jesus. And he's going to come with pastoral authority that's marked by graciousness and directness. And by the way, isn't that what we really need from a book like James? All right, so that's question number one. Who is James? Question number two, who is he writing to? Who are the people that James is talking to? And there are are three ways in which James describes his audience. Number one, he describes them as genuine Christians. You can see that in verse one, to the 12 tribes. These are people probably from a Jewish background, well familiar with the Old Testament, who had come in the very early years after the ministry of Jesus Christ to believe exactly what James believed, that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was actually the Christ of the Old Testament. And they had become fully committed to that. They had confessed with their mouth the truth about Jesus Christ. And these tribes, 
these 12 tribes would have been very familiar in the Old Testament. Now, by James' day, 10 of the tribes had disappeared. And there were only two left, and they would have been pretty much scattered throughout the Israel of James' day. So when he uses the word 12 tribes, he's actually talking about the whole Israel of God. And that's why I look at this and say he's talking about people who have come to really believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he describes them in this way, they are probably people who of Jewish background. They would be very, very familiar. You say, well, how in the world did that happen? Well, you know immediately from reading Acts that the very first Christians who ever were birthed into the kingdom of God were Jews that lived in Jerusalem. Many of them, in fact, were former priests. And then we know that when Paul and Barnabas and later Silas went to the cities that they visited on their missionary journeys, the first place they went to announce the fact about Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah was to the Jewish synagogue. And the gospel was preached first in every city to people who followed Moses, which is another way of describing these people as Jews. And many of them believed. In fact, in every city where the gospel was preached, there were Jews that believed. And so in the early days, in the first decade of the the first Christian church, the church was filled with new believers, and most of them had come from a Jewish background. Now, these believers had experienced something. They had been dispersed. And you can see that in uh, in verse 1 again, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So what had dispersed them? Well, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And those who were scattered went about preaching. The idea there is heralding the word. They went everywhere and they gospelized the people they encountered along the way. They announced the truth about Jesus Christ. So these people were genuine believers, probably of Jewish background, who were scattered everywhere in the ancient world. And as they went, they were announcing what they had come to believe about Jesus Christ. And that brings the third thing we ought to know about them. They were struggling. They were struggling. So here they are. They they have believed, and now they're scattered, and they're preaching. They're gospelizing. And as they go, they are struggling. They are struggling in the cities where they live. They're struggling economically. They have left everything. They have lost everything. They are struggling socially. They are despised for their identification with Christ. Relationally, they they are at odds with one another. Sometimes the pressure has been the reason for this. But relationally, many of them are at odds with each other. Spiritually, they are under immense pressure and temptation to compromise their spiritual faith and to do something that would damage the gospel or be disloyal to Christ. You know what? It sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? I mean, aren't we that way? We have professed to believe something about Jesus Christ. We have been called to take that profession and that confession everywhere to all the corners of the world and to gospelize like they did. And as we go, do we not experience pressure? Do we not experience temptation? And so we, like them, are desperately in need of cultivated and displaying a living faith to a dying world. What does that faith look like? Well, it's wholehearted. It's genuine. It's it's single focused. It's committed. And it's fully trusting. It's dependent. So James is writing to people who needed to cultivate and display a living faith to a dying world. And that brings us to the final question, and that is this. Why is James writing to them? What is his main concern? What's at the heart of this? And we sort of alluded to it earlier in the message, and that is this. James is concerned about his people who have been scattered, 
who have confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, and as they have been scattered everywhere, and as they are now having to live out that confession and display the reality of their faith in very, very difficult places and among people who are either deeply offended by what they're saying and believing or deeply skeptical of it, they are confronted on a daily basis with a temptation to choose another wisdom. This is the wisdom they have. And the wisdom they have in the Old Testament has pointed them to a person named Jesus. The wisdom that came down from above has as its center and as its end a person whose name is Jesus. And they had confessed and they had believed and they had embraced on on account of the wisdom they had received, they had embraced and confessed and followed this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who they believed was the Christ of God, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. But everywhere they went, they were confronted by another wisdom that said, that isn't true, that is absolutely foolish, or that is offensive. Paul said to the Corinthians, when you talk that way about Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, it is a, it is a massive offense to every Jew you encounter, and it is absolute foolishness to every Gentile you encounter. And so here were these people with that confession, and they're encountering that foolishness and that offense, and they are starting to wonder about the other wisdom. And it's starting to show up in their life. They are resisting temptation, but some of them have it. They are starting to be very impressed by the wealth and the power of those around them. And they're starting to show preference and preferential treatment to the rich who despise them, James says. When you listen to how they talk, what comes out of their mouth doesn't match their confession. When you see what they do, James says you're like somebody who hears the truth, but when you walk away, it has no impact on you, and you don't end up doing the truth that you hear. You've embraced the wrong kind of wisdom, and it has turned you into a friend with the world. It has brought you into a very dangerous and damaging place that is completely incompatible with who you are and terribly disloyal to the one who saved you and to whom you belong. So James is writing to these double-minded people and he is saying to them, you have embraced the wrong wisdom and you are walking now in the wrong way. And the reason that this is happening to you is because you are double-minded. And at the end of the book, he says, now I'm writing to you because I want someone to turn your heart back to single-focusedness. I want you to be single-focused in your faith. I want you to stop being double Minded. James is going to talk about this in chapter 4 when he speaks directly about this and he says you need to humble yourself, you need to resist the devil, you need to return to God, you need to repent by cleansing your hands and purifying your heart. He's going to speak very directly to that and we're going to let James lead us to that point. But here's how I want to end this morning. James does something very interesting here. Here's what he does. He points us to a prayer. If you go to chapter 5 and you see what James does, in verse 19, my brother, if any among you wanders from the truth, that's what's happening. There are people in these congregations who are starting to embrace the wrong wisdom and it's leading them to the wrong way and they are starting to align themselves with the wrong friendship, with friendship uh, with the world. And James says, if there are those among you who are doing that and wandering from the truth, somebody needs to bring that person back. Well, how in the world am I going to do that? if that's going on in somebody's life, or how am I going to do that if it's going on in my life? And James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
And then he points you to Elijah and he points you to a particular prayer that Elijah prayed. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months and it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So James says, you want to know what to do about all of this? There is an effectual prayer that is the answer to all of this and the God to whom you pray will turn the hearts of people who are wandering back because he gives more grace. And mercy with God always triumphs over judgment. These are two big lessons in James. He gives more grace. No matter what you're doing over here, there is enough grace to turn your heart back And God does that because he loves mercy more than judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what about this prayer that Elijah prayed? You know, it's it's, it's contained for us in 1 Kings chapter 17 all the way through 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the story of Elijah. You know the story well. Elijah shows up in the court of Ahab. And if you read chapter 17... There's no prayer in the first part of the story. He just shows up in Ahab's court and he looks at Ahab who says to him, oh, here's the one troubling our land. And, and, and Elijah very boldly says, you are the one troubling the land and it's not going to rain until I say so. And he leaves. And three years and six months later, it hasn't rained. The entire economy is in a mess. The nation is set back on its heels People are in distress because there hasn't been any rain. Now, right after that, there is a massive miracle that that the writer of Kings talks about. Elijah shows up at a widow's house and her son is dead. And Elijah prays repeatedly over this boy. And the next thing you know, when Elijah is done praying, that boy is alive again. It is a spectacular prayer. So why doesn't James point us to that prayer? Like, why doesn't he say the effectual fervent prayer, like the one that Elijah prayed over the dead boy, avails much? Why why did he point us to a place where at the beginning we didn't even recognize that Elijah prayed? It's because of what happened at the end. Because three years and six months later, Elijah is standing on a mountaintop and the entire nation is in front of them and he's about to pray. And before he prays, he says this, O Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all of these things at your word. He says this to them. He came near all the people And he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In other words, he's talking to the entire nation like James is talking to his readers. You've got two ways. And they're totally incompatible. And you can't decide which way you're going to go. If the Lord is God, then remain his friend. But if he isn't, then go be Baal's friend. But stop being double-minded. You know what the people did? The people did not answer him a word. So what did Elijah do? He prayed. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, now here's their answer, the Lord, he is God. You know what we need, folks? You know what James is using this illustration to do? He's saying, look, the real answer to all of this isn't any convincing words that I can say to you. 
There's nothing I can say to you from this pulpit that's strong enough to penetrate into the thing in your heart that has drawn you away from God. I I don't have the right words. But there is a word that can do that, and it's this word. But for this word to do that in our day like it did in Elijah's day, it is going to have to be the work of God. It is God that is going to have to turn our hearts back. And that's why the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, a man who is a friend of God, praying for believers who are struggling in this way, it is, the, it is that praying that will turn our hearts back to God. James is a very, very powerful book. And if we'll listen to what he has to say, it will make an immense difference in our lives and in our church. Lord, thank you for a book like James. Lord, it's a stunning, stunning journey that James lays out for us. And Lord, as we move through this book, chapter by chapter, help us not to miss one thing that you have for us. Lord, help us to look beneath the surface to see the immense river of truth that flows through this book that gives life and health and healing to our souls. Lord, for those of us who are deeply committed to the faith we have embraced, Lord, would you help us to remain, to rejoice in what the trial and pressure of life does to that faith to resist the temptations that come against that faith. Lord, for those who have abandoned that faith and wandered far from it, Lord, we do ask that you would use this book to turn their hearts back to you. Lord, we confess our inability to do that on a human level. But Lord, you turned an entire nation back in Elijah's day, and you can turn our friends back to you. And then, Lord, for those in our midst... All of us are tempted to do this, Lord, who are double-minded. Lord, would you help us to cultivate a single-focused, fully committed, deeply trusting faith in you as we live out our friendship with you in a world that desperately needs to see a living, vibrant, growing faith that came to us through the gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.